47 as our focal passage this morning, but I want to do just a little bit of um, groundwork in the, te- in the book of Acts before we get there, and then uh, just a little bit different approach to uh, the scriptures this morning uh, that we'll be doing, um, not straight exposition of a certain passage, but we'll be, uh, I'll be expositing the entire book of Acts for you this morning, okay? So that's what we're going to try to tackle. Before we do, let's pray. Jesus, uh, before I open up my mouth to speak about prayer and the role of prayer in your church, we would be remiss if we did not pray. So we pause and we come before you, Lord. We look to you, the author of our lives, creator of our lives, and the redeemer of our lives. Jesus, you have bought us and you own us and we are yours. And you've instructed how we are to live. You've given us the right to cry out to you. You've adopted us into your family and by which we've received the spirit of adoption and by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so in this hour, we cry to you, Abba, Father. We pray to you, feed us. We are hungry. Feed us and grow us and mature us from your word. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. So um, you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. And for those of you that are new to church, you probably, like me, you may be a little disappointed whenever you find the book of Acts. It's on page um, 909 um, in your Bibles. And so um, um, I remember like the first time I remember my grandfather preaching out of the book of Acts. And I thought, man, there's a book of the Bible I could get behind. And then I looked and I saw that it was A-C-T-S and not A-X-E. And I was like, dag on it. You know, I was all excited. A book of Acts, like it's going to have some great action in it. And although it just is A-C-T-S, it is acts of Jesus through the work of his apostles. It still has got a lot of action in it, as we'll even see today. And this morning, what we want to talk about is we're going to talk about the subject of prayer. And so we've been in a short sermon series when we've been talking about discipleship. And this morning, we want to talk about the role of, of prayer in the, life of, uh, in the life of the disciple and in the church. And so when we talk about prayer, the New Testament talks about prayer in a couple different ways, and we could talk about it in a couple different ways. One of the ways that the Bible speaks about prayer, it talks about individual private prayer. So that's the prayer that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. So you have the Pharisees, which are the really, really religious leaders of the day. And what they love to pray, the way that they love to pray was they love to pray loud and proud, but not with good intentions. They love to stand on the street corners and pray loud, eloquent, flowery prayers so that everybody around them could hear them. They love to go into the churches, the synagogue, and pray loud and proud prayers in there, but it was all for man and for man's applause and for their own fame and for their own sense of superiority and had nothing to do with Jesus. And so what Jesus says is when you pray as my disciples, here's how I want you to pray. I want you to find a quiet place a closet, a dark room. Go inside there and I want you to pray privately. I want you to pray pray in a way that's individualistic, that's private, that that is on where you are before the Lord and it's just you and the Lord. And Jesus says, that's the kind of prayer that the Father hears and the Father rewards. But there's also in the Bible, another kind of prayer, a prayer that isn't Pharisaical, but neither is it individualistic. It's not the discipline of prayer either, but it's a corporate prayer. It is a church family coming together with pure hearts and godly motives, 
praying together. And that's the kind of prayer that we see all throughout the book of Acts. So where we left off last week, or yes, last week was we were in Matthew, the 28th chapter. We were looking at verses 16 through 20, what's called the Great Commission. And in this, at the end of that, what we see is Jesus gives a commission, a command to his church. The commission and command was two words. It was make disciples. And then Jesus says, here's how you're going to make disciples. You're going to go, you're going to, pre- you're going to preach and teach, and Jesus is going to convert. You're going to baptize. That's what you're going to do. You're going to be going. You're going to be baptizing. You're going to be teaching. And in that, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be working to convert and to save and to grow and to mature through your efforts. And then Jesus ascends onto high The disciples are left there with Jesus's command, which picks up in the book of Acts. So chronologically, Matthew 28 would end in the book of Acts. And so that's why we're in the book of the Acts. In fact, Luke, the writer of Acts, he picks up on just a snapshot of what happened on the Mount Olivet. And then what he says, let's start, um, if you will, let's start in um, the fourth verse. In chapter one, verse number four, like I'm not joking. Like two things I'm not joking about. One is you reading your Bible and two is about me needing these stupid glasses. Two things I'm not joking about this morning, but get your Bibles out so you can see them. Maybe use, if you got to use your eye device or whatever, just do that. Just don't, don't be distracted, but stay there because we're going we're gonna to walk through the book of Acts together, um, at least sections of it, should I say. All right, in Acts chapter, let's start in verse number four. He says, and while they were staying, um, and while they were staying with, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So this is Jesus' word to those 11 disciples. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And now jump down with me, if you uh, would, to verse number eight. Look at what Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So you're gonna receive power. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. And then what's gonna happen from the Holy Spirit coming is you're gonna be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem, in the region of Judea, in the region of Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Now keep on looking with me. Jump on down to verse number 12. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, that's where they were when Jesus is taken up into heaven, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, just a short few miles. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. So that's the 11 disciples that are together. All these with one accord, they were doing what? Look at this with me. They were devoting themselves to prayer. If you're using your Bible or one of those pew Bibles, if you will, just maybe take a pen and underline that. They were devoting themselves to prayer. That what the disciples come together, and now there's about, as Luke will record for us over um, in verse number 15, there's about 120 people in this upper room, they're praying and they're waiting. They're praying to Jesus and they're waiting on the spirit to come together or the spirit to come and to give them power, to make them the wit- to witnesses to all the earth. And what Luke says here, he says, is they were together in one accord. Now you, you understand what an accord is, right? It's a car made by Honda. 
That's one of my grandfather's jokes, but daggone it, you can't. Like, I just feel the need just to pay him homage and respect. No, what accord is, is it is unity of mind and unity of purpose. I know he's, he, he would be so proud. Not uniformity. I say, Paul, I didn't, Paul, I didn't, make, I didn't shrink back from, from declaring unto them what you had, had made known unto me. It's, it's unity of mind and unity of purpose. Not uniformity, because there's always diversity in the church. In fact, the word accord is a derivative of the musical word that we would use, accord, you know, C-H-O-R-D. And so what we, for those of you that know anything about music, I don't, but um, I Googled this. A chord is not one note, but it's three or more notes played in harmony together. That's the picture of the church as it come together. They were in one accord. They were in harmony together. And so what harmonized them? What brought them together? Even though they are from somewhat diverse backgrounds, but this is what had drawn the church together is a mutual love for Christ and a mutual, uh, the, the, the mutual of work of Jesus that had saved them. It's a mutual faith in Christ and in Christ's mission. And so they're together with this one purpose, one attitude. The attitude and the purpose of the church is to glorify Jesus and to make Jesus known until the ends of the earth. Like that's it. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why do we find ourselves in this upper room? Well, Jesus commanded us to go and to wait because he told us the spirit would descend upon us. It would make us his witnesses and then we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth that the Holy Spirit power is going to descend upon us. And in that he will do a work in us that will make us usable by Jesus for Jesus' glory to make Jesus known unto the very ends of the earth. That's why they're together. And it's to that reason that they are praying. But notice what Luke says. They are devoting themselves to prayer. Now this will show up, this exact phrase will show up two other times in the book of Acts. Flip over with me just a page into Acts chapter 2. And we'll see it here in Acts chapter in Acts chapter 2, the same thing, the same phrase is being used. That what happens in Acts chapter 1 and the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is exactly what Jesus said would happen, happens. The Spirit descends. The day of Pentecost happens. The disciples are together and all of a sudden the, the room starts like there's a rushing wind in the room. They're looking around on top of each other's heads and there's now a, a fire. Like picture that for just a moment. Like you're together and you're praying and as good Baptists, you're praying with your eyes closed, right? But you peek out of one eye because you hear this noise in the room. And then when you look, you see a tongue, cloven tongue of fire on everybody's head. Now, what is that about? Quickly, let me tell you what that's about. Well, just like in the tabernacle, when they consecrated the tabernacle, what happened in the consecration of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus is, God's presence descended upon the tabernacle. It was God saying, hey, this is my place. This is where I dwell. And it descended as a, a pillar of fire. A pillar of fire descended and there it was. And now, as Jesus had prophesied, the new temple is no longer a tent. It's no longer a building, but the new temple is now God's people. And so they hear this wind. That sounds like Exodus 
Whenever Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the 10 commandments, there's a, there's a, a violent shaking, there's a wind, there's fire. Same thing in the tabernacle, same thing in the temple. And now in this upper room, it's happening, but it's not happening on top of the room. It's happening on people's lives as they're receiving the Holy Spirit. It's God saying, you are my vessel, you are my temple. I'm doing something powerful and amazing through you and I'm going to use you. My presence is no longer outside or in a building or contained in a building, but now my presence is in my people. And so that's what the tongues of fire is all about. So the day of Pentecost happens, Peter gets up, the same disciple that just denied Jesus just a few days before, denied Jesus three times, even denied Jesus and took Jesus's name in vain to a little girl. I mean, how intimidating is a little girl? Not very intimidating. But a young girl comes to Peter, aren't you one of the disciples? And Peter blasphemes the name of Jesus. And now Peter's been restored and Peter stands up, maybe on a rooftop. And Peter preaches and proclaims the name of Jesus. I love the way that his sermon starts off because he starts off, they all think they're drunk. And Peter's got to start off saying, hey, we haven't been into the booze yet. That's what Peter prays to Hey, we're not drunk yet, you know, but it's, it's, this, isn't, this isn't alcohol that's doing this to us. This is God's spirit that's among us. And Peter preaches and there's a miracle happening. 3,000 people get saved on that day. 3,000 people are converted and baptized. And then in Luke chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter two, it's written by Luke, but in Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47, we have a description of that early church. What did that early church, those first believers, what did they look like? And this is what, this is what Luke writes. He says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Same word, and to prayers. They're devoted to prayer. In verse number 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed, they were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. Now let's focus in on verse number 42. The early disciples were devoted to four things. And possibly, just possibly, you want to write these four down. In fact, this is kind of three of the fours where we'll be over the next couple of weeks. Number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles are the men in whom the Holy Spirit will inspire and author the New Testament through. So when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to God's word. That the teaching and the learning of God's word, they were devoted to it. It was at the center of who they are and what they did. Number two, they were devoted to the fellowship. That is that unique relationship, that one accord, that that unity, that harmony of the church. And it was being evidenced, this one accord was being evidenced through humility and generosity and service and mutual discipleship to one another. Number three, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now this could mean a couple different things. One is it could mean the fellowship. Breaking of bread, as we saw here, eating a meal together. They got together and they ate meals together in people's homes. Possibly, just possibly, it means that, but I think it means more than that. I think the breaking of the bread that's used here, I think it really references the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus took bread and broke it. This is my body that's been broken for you. I think what Luke is getting at is this church was a gospel-centered church, that this church came together to remember what Jesus had done. It means that the gospel, the finished work of Jesus on their behalf was at the center of what was happening in this church, not a moral, moralistic religious community, but it's a community that is being formed and being shaped by Jesus and Jesus' sacrificial work. And number four, where we'll spend the rest of the time today, and they were devoted to prayer. It shows up one other time in Acts, this language of devotion to prayer. In Acts chapter six, if you will, just turn over a few pages and we'll go back to Acts chapter two. But in Acts chapter six, the rigors of ministry is set in. As I said, Peter preached in Jerusalem and the church at Jerusalem was already 3,000. Good grief. After that, I mean, the church grows to, at one point in the book of Acts says it's up to 5,000. The church in Jerusalem would have kept growing and growing and growing, but God sovereignly sends persecution to the church in Jerusalem and busts it up and sends them out so that they'll fulfill the great commission and go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But nevertheless, the church in Jerusalem is busting at the seams and there's all kinds of needs happening. And the apostles find themselves weighed down by the rigors of ministry. They're trying to figure out how do we get everybody fed and how do we take care of everybody? How do we disciple everybody? How do we do all of this? And then what they do is they decide there needs to be, like in a church, there needs to be a division of duty, just like any other you know, healthy family. There needs to be some understanding of what's the division of duty. And so the apostles say, we're called and commissioned by God. Here's what we need to be doing. And this is in um, Acts chapter six, verse four. This is our calling. This is our duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The same thing is happening there. They're devoted to prayer. And so what does a church that is devoted to prayer, what does that look like? Well, look, the book of Acts is a book of history. It's primarily telling us descriptions of what happened when the Holy Spirit descended and how God has used this church in the very beginning. The book of Acts as a book of history, it spans over time. That the book of Acts, when Jesus is taken up into heaven, like chapter one, it's probably somewhere around, I don't know, 30 AD to 35 AD, somewhere in that neighborhood. And the events that end the book of Acts in Acts the 28th chapter, they occur somewhere around 60 to 65 AD. So for a span of 25 to 30 years of time, not that very long, this is what's occurring as we read in the book of Acts. Now I want you to do for just a second is, imagine if you would, you're one of those disciples that hears Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and you believe in Jesus and you're converted and you're saved. And you're just a, a regular Joe believer as if there is anything, but we'll leave it there. You're just a regular believer in the church of Jerusalem. You're just a normal person there and maybe you stayed in Jerusalem. Maybe you got scattered when persecution hit. That was in uh, Acts chapter eight, but now you are just, um, you're a believer. And I want you to, for just a second, as I describe this, I want you to imagine all that you would have seen as evidence of the power of God coming to the world, as evidence to the power of a resurrected, ascending, ruling and reigning Jesus, as evidence to Jesus sending his spirit, as evidence to your salvation and you being at work and you being filled with that spirit. Think, if you would, what all you would have seen. Well, first you would have seen your church grow from 120 to 3,000, from 3,000 to 5,000, 
plus, possibly as many as 20,000 before persecution scattered you. You would have witnessed and seen the gospel spread from the city of Jerusalem into the region of Judea, into Samaria, over the entire known Roman Empire. That from Eastern Asia to Southern Europe and Greece, all the way down into Northern Africa, you would have seen the gospel of Jesus Christ go and to touch those areas. You would have experienced persecution and heard about persecution. Possibly the home group you were meeting in, your PCG, if you will. Possibly it got ransacked. Possibly people got arrested. Possibly friends of yours gotten beaten. You would have heard about your early church leaders like Stephen getting stoned and James being beheaded. But then you would have also seen one of the primary persecutors of the church, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. You would have seen and heard about this man being converted, being saved, and now becoming the lead missionary theologian and church planter in the church. I mean, think about that right there. A terrorist turned theologian, church planter, disciple maker. You would have heard and seen and experienced racial and ethical barriers being torn down as the gospel created one new humanity. You would have heard about pagan cities, Roman outposts immersed in Greek culture and pagan worship, how they have been overturned, literally turned upside down. But the preaching of the gospel had unleashed the power of God and that power toppled over even the economics of cities and whole cities were transformed. You would have heard about people being converted, people like like a Philippian jailer and a God-fearing businesswoman named Lydia and a demonized slave girl being set free and converted. You would have heard about the apostle Paul preaching to the poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich, from peasants to governors to kings to the chief philosophers of the Roman Empire. You would have heard about churches being planted, disciples being made, widows being fed, orphans being adopted, whole households being saved and baptized and missionaries being sent out. Now, what if you didn't need your imagination to see this? What if the same God with the same power, sending the same spirit with the same mission was doing that here through us? And if we could for just a second, if we could, if we could turn, if we could put on, if we could put on x-ray glasses, well, that wouldn't be biologically correct. Not x-ray glasses, but if we could for just a moment, if we could put on, if we could put on CAT scan glasses and we could look at the church in the book of Acts, that the apostle Paul calls the church a body. It's the body of Christ. And if we could For just a second, if we could put on CAT scan glasses and we could examine the cardiovascular system of that body, that early body of the church, if we could, with x-ray glasses, if we could see the heart of this church and the lifeblood of this church and the veins and the capillaries and the arteries of this church, here's what we would see is first and foremost, we would see a church with a heart for the glory of God. A church with a heart for the glory and the renown of God and for the name of Jesus to be known among every person. 
that in the new covenant, the new covenant comes with a promise that no longer will you have to go to your neighbor and say, look here, here is Jesus. Look here, here is the Lord. But it says that everyone will know of the Lord. And it was their intention to make that part of the covenant, that promise known. I want everybody around every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We're going to get on boats. We're going to ride on camels. We're going to horseback. We're going to do whatever we need to do in order that everyone may know about the glory of God. And the more we discuss and preach and proclaim the glory of the God, the more glory God gets and the brighter his glory shines. And that was their heartbeat, a heartbeat for the glory of God. And the lifeblood, the lifeblood of that church that was enabling them to do that as the heart pumped and the blood went out through the veins, it was the very power of God. It was them doing what they could not do on their own. It was them preaching and proclaiming a message and seeing evidence of that by the conversion of souls. And like I said, cities being overturned, that wasn't mere men doing that. That was the power of God being unleashed in and through them and through their cities and through their messages that they preached and proclaimed. That's the lifeblood of the church and the veins carrying that precious blood. The power of God was the prayers of the church. It was the prayers of the church. It was the church on its knees, on its faces before a holy, sovereign, mighty, powerful God praying that God would do what only God could do. That if we had the time when we could do a simple word study throughout the book of Acts, what you would see surrounding each of those events that I discussed, some 30 plus instances, you would see a church that is praying. Normal Christians as if there is anything. But normal Christians that you and I would say that we are on their knees, on their faces, praying, asking God to do, to do what only God can do. That for the church in Acts, that church, prayer was the source of life. Prayer was the very air that they breathed day in and day out. It was central and foundational, not supplemental. And the fervency church, man, I'm, I've been so convicted of this. But it's true. It's absolutely true. That the fervency, urgency, frequency, and subject of our prayers it reveals what we really believe about God and his mission. Do we believe Acts? I mean, do we believe, yeah, Acts 1.8. Do we believe Matthew 28.16? That that's the job of the church is to carry the fame of Jesus, the word of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Is that really what we believe? if it's what we really believe that we are to be about, then the fervency and urgency and frequency and subject of our prayers, praying that God would make disciples, that is what we will be praying for. And if I could make an observation, that we struggle in prayer. Most of us in here, we struggle in prayer. We struggle with individualistic discipline of prayer. And we, I think we pray, we struggle as a church in a corporate time of prayer. We try to be intentional in putting together a time of prayer, but let's just be honest. It's, it's one thing 
to say our prayers is another thing to pray. That's J.C. Ryle. And I think it's so true. It's one thing to say, hey, everybody pray with us. Let's pray. And it's another thing for us to actually pray. That in churches like ours, oftentimes prayer is used as a transition time. The band to come off the stage and pastors to come up or pastor to come down and band to come up. It's a transitional time to shut our Bibles and to be seated. It shows no real fervency, no real urgency. What I think it says is that, hey, we can do this apart from God. Hey, we can see souls saved and make and baptize people and make disciples apart from the power and the working of God. The observation is this, that we struggle in prayer. The early church disciples were devoted to prayer. Possibly they knew something and understood something that we don't. And so what was that? Well, two things, just quickly. Well, somewhat quickly. Two things that I believe that possibly they understood that you and I don't quite understand. The first is this. They understood that God is sovereign over everything. And he is the supplier of everything they need. Now, some of you are going to go, hold on. This is a church that we rightly, doctrinally, emphasize the sovereignty of God. I mean, we just sang a song about the sovereignty of God. You are sovereign over us. And let me say, we do understand it, but I don't know that we understand it to the fullness. I mean, I cannot tell you how much joy it brought me as a pastor to hear you all singing out over we are sovereign, over God is sovereign over us. I mean, I thought like, man, the numbers of songs that have been written that say very little, most, mostly just fluffing stuff about God. And we're singing deep truths. And this church that I get the pastor is singing with somewhat gusto for you guys. You're singing this song. You're worshiping this God. So, so I get it that you and I, we understand to a degree that God is sovereign. What do we mean for those of you here that don't know it? And you're just saying God, you were sovereign over us and possibly you don't know what we mean by it. It means this, that God is in absolute control. It means that God has a purpose and a will and God will always accomplish his purpose and his will, right? That's what, that's what we mean. And we do, we believe that. We believe that. But listen, a lack of prayer does not reveal our trust in the sovereignty of God. Some could hey, look, maybe I don't need to pray because God's sovereign, he's in control, so why pray? That rather, does not reveal our trust in the sovereignty of God, but rather prayerlessness reveals our misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. Because here, here, here's what I want you to grab for this, because God in his sovereignty, he has appointed both the ends and the means both the ends and the means. So the ends, what we mean by that, the ends is that which he has purposed, that which God has decreed, that which God has willed. God has sovereignly set that up. He has purposed it. He has decreed it. He has willed it. He will make it happen. But how is he gonna make it happen? Well, that's the means. The means is the way in which God has purposed and willed for the ends to be accomplished. That both in the ends and in the means, God will be glorified. God will be magnified in his power. 
for God to do what we otherwise could not do. That's what he's about. He wants to do what you and I in our flesh, apart from him and apart from his power, he could not do. That's his ends, to make much of himself, to reveal himself in salvation and answering prayers and being the supplier to all of our needs and the way that God has set up, the means for all of that to occur that God has rightly set up is through prayer the means that God has ordained for his will to be accomplished is primarily through prayer. That's why the apostle James, he will write in his short book and he will say this, he will say that you have not, that's ends, because you ask not, that's prayer. That's the means. That truly understanding the sovereignty of God should lead us to pray big, bold prayers asking God to do what only God can do, that prayerlessness reveals that we believe in a little God with little power. Prayerlessness means we have bought into fatalism, which is not congruent with the teachings of Jesus, but prayer, urgent, fervent, frequent, dependent prayer reveals that you and I, we believe in a real God with real power, able to wield that power and to do what only, what only will be accomplished by him. We see this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, persecution hits. James, I'm sorry, Peter and John, they're warned and rested after they heal a man who's been lame for a while. They see this man be healed, power of God working through them. They get in trouble. They get arrested. They're, they're released and they're warned not to ever proclaim the name of Christ again. They go back to the church. And what does the church do after they've been released? The church falls on its knees and it begins to pray. And here's how it prays. They lift up their voice. They don't pray, dear God. They don't even pray, heavenly father. Here's how they pray. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. You're the one who has all power, that can wield all power. We pray to you to use that power to, to come and to, and then they pray. They pray that God would fill them they prayed for Holy Spirit power and for boldness and that they would be able to continue to preach the word of God. And in Acts 4, and it ends like this, the prayer ends like this. The whole house that they're gathered in began to shake. Would you go back to that church? You're in there, they're praying and all of a sudden be like, you'd be like, man, they done built that church on a fault line or something, right? Like what if it gets got some structural problem in it? No, it was evidence of God hearing and God answering their prayers. It's evidence to God's power and it was among them. Does God still work like that? I don't know. Let's try in a few minutes, right? Let's pray. See what God does. Like, you'll come back, right? I mean, like, man, if the building starts to fall down, we'll run out. I think God will protect us and we'll just pray and maybe God will find somebody else to give us another building, right? He did it once. Maybe he'll do it again. They understood who they were praying to, and they understood that God is the supplier of all that they needed to carry out the mission of God. When they prayed, they prayed to God, who was the supplier of everything that they needed, that God had commanded them to do something that they could not do, but it was God who would supply the work and the effort and the energy and the fruit of doing what God had commanded them to do. 
God had set up the ends, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he had set up the means. You're gonna go, but I'm gonna empower you to go. They prayed unified prayers with a unified purpose. I pray that for us, that we would pray a unified prayers with a unified purpose. They prayed that the glory of God through the declaration of the gospel and the making disciples known throughout the ends of the earth. They knew that that is why they existed and they knew that only Jesus could do it through them. Point number two, they, out of seven, no, I'm joking, out of two, they understood that they were desperate and dependent. They understood that they were desperate and dependent. Good grief, I don't know about you, but I long to see more than just status quo, mediocre, mediocre, run-of-the-mill Christianity, as if there is anything. But that which we so often see being preached in pulpits and churches believing in, that is not congruent with what we read in scripture. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I want to see and to experience the power of God in this church. Not that we're not, but I want to see more of it. I want to be desperate and dependent to see God do more. I do not want to be content with three or four or five baptisms a year. That's what I'm saying. Are we just content with that? Are we just okay with that? We're preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Look at what God has done in our midst, the miracles that God has wrought, how God has brought us from a old leaking factory into this place, into the very heart of this city. I will not be content with three or four baptisms a year. Let's pray. Is it because we got three or four baptisms a year because that's all God wants to do through us? Maybe. Or maybe it's because we're not praying. We're not being fervent enough, frequent enough, urgent enough in our prayers to say, God, apart from you, my pagan hellbound neighbor will not come to you. Use me to preach and proclaim the gospel. Fill me with boldness. Get me outside of myself. I know how I'm wired. I'm wired as an introvert. I don't like talking to my wife, let alone my neighbor, but fill me with boldness that I can speak and know them and build relationships. Fill me with love for them so that it doesn't feel all convoluted and messy, but fill me. Like I'm not content with my own, like my own children. I'm gonna see Jesus say my own children. Don't you? Are you praying and crying out to Jesus, Jesus do what only you can do? I'm gonna catechize my kids and teach them the truth and talk to them, but ultimately only Jesus can take out their heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in them. I'm not content with Jesus of putting us here and just saying, oh, you know, there's been five murders within two blocks, man. Jesus put us in the hood. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus put us in the hood so we could change the hood. Through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel and through us befriending and getting to know and building relationships and serving and loving this community, maybe, just maybe, Jesus wants to change the opioid crisis through this church. Are we okay with that? Do we want that? Do we long for that? Are we praying for that? As our sister Beth Luking meets with folks who are struggling, are we praying for her? So when she walks into that room, people that are bound and in captive, that the, the chains fall off spiritually, it's not gonna happen just through teaching and showing a video and, lead, and, and uh, pride, you know, whatever, what's it called? Uh, leading a class, it's not gonna just happen through that. We gotta pray for it. 
We need to pray. We need to pray that God would empower us. He would fill us. That we would take uh, the gospel to this backyard, to our neighbors. That God would build us up. That God would plant these fertile seeds in the soils of the hearts of the children that right now are are being taught the gospel as our teachers uh, work through the curriculum and teach it. We wanna pray for God that God would work and wield his power to keep families and marriages together, that our marriages in this church, they would continue to exemplify the gospel and take God's power and and, and God's power would show up in them. We wanna pray and ask God to do a move to see our city transformed. Nothing apart from God's work, none of that will happen. Murders will continue. Families will, will continue to be destroyed. Captives will continue in slavery that we need God and we need to pray. We need to pray. I wanna see the gospel go to unreached people groups. Think about that for just a second. In 2018, we got cell phones and internet, Twitter, all that we've got. And there are still on this globe, people who have never heard the name and fame and work of Jesus. Oh man, we got work to do, church. We've got so much work to do. I want to pray that God would do it. That those who are devoted to God's mission on God's terms, we will be devoted to prayer. Let me close with this. The wheels of all machinery for extending the gospel, they are, they are moved by prayer. Let's pray. Like, let's just take a few minutes just to pray, church. Let me lead you in a time of prayer. This is what I want you to do is I want you, over the next few minutes, we're gonna fix our attention first and foremost, on the God of the universe. That's where prayer starts. The disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus said, you start here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we'll begin by fixing our attention on the God of the universe. Heavenly Father, by the blood of Christ, we come before you in prayer. We come before you to pray because you have welcomed it. You're glorified by it. You delight in hearing from your children. You delight in us declaring our insufficiency and our dependence upon you. You love hearing that. You love hearing that and knowing that we know in our hearts we cannot do any of this. Who is sufficient for these things? As the Apostle Paul writes, no one is sufficient for these things, but yet you, by the work of your spirit, you fill us. Father, as we come before you, we're gonna pray. And this is what I'm gonna ask you to do. I want you to pray for your own life. And I'm gonna ask you to pray for your family. And then we're gonna pray for our church. And then we're gonna pray for our community. God, you are holy and you're majestic. God, you love it when we sing and when we say that we need you. That you love it whenever your, your power intersects with our need through prayer. Lord, we need you in our own lives. Right now, in our lives, we need you to work and to do and to supply in some area. There are many people here, Lord, no doubt. And I pray for them over the next few minutes as I even pray for uh, myself that we throw pride aside and we cry out to you, God, God of grace and God of mercy to help us and to strengthen us. Lord, help us in this specific area. Now you pray for that specific area. It could be spiritual. It could be physical. It could be emotional. 
It could be relational. Anything and everything. Pray for your work, for your home. God knows what's going on in your life. Let cry out for God. Cry out to him and ask for his help. I invite you, come on, pray. Now broaden it out and pray. Pray for your family. If you're married, pray for your spouse. If you have, if you have kids, pray for your kids. If you have a family, pray for that family. Pray for them. If your kids have yet to profess faith in Christ, pray for that. Ask God to do what only he can do. The miracle of rebirth, of conversion, is something only he can do. You cannot discipline salvation into your kids. Only God can do it. And pray for him and ask for him to do that. If your kids are believers and pray for them, pray that they'd stand and stand strong in this present evil age that we live in. Pray for other families around. Pray for your parents even. Pray for your parents. Pray for the other marriages in this room. Pray for the other families and the other children around us. Ask God to be merciful and gracious to us. Lord, I ask you to be gracious to our marriages, that we know marriages exemplify the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore Satan hates them. He loves nothing more than to destroy them. And so my prayer is on two fronts. First front, Lord, I pray that you would keep our marriages together, hold us together, keep us faithful to one another. And second, Lord, I pray for those in the room who have experienced divorce. I pray against the work of the enemy that wants to bring condemnation and accusation. I pray against that as well, Lord. And I pray that the truth, Lord, of, of, of who you are would stand in the gap. Lord, I pray that your love and your forgiveness and your blood would wash over all of their guilt and all of their shame anew and afresh, Lord. Pray for both of those, Lord. And Lord, we pray for us as a family of faith in Christ. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would protect our unity, that we may remain a church of one accord. I pray for us, Lord, that you would protect our unity. Again, Satan hates a church that proclaims Jesus, a church that talks about mission, a church that prays. Oh my gosh, he hates it. So may you strengthen us. And we stand strong against every wile of the enemy that may want to destroy us, to stop us, to divide us to sidetrack us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we be focused upon you and upon your glory, Jesus. Lord, we pray this week for our discipleship classes that are gonna meet, for all of the DNA classes that will meet this week, Lord, in various places. We pray for them that they would be busy about the word and prayer and encouraging one another. Pray for the class that Beth leads, Lord, set the captives free, use it to teach and to make disciples, Lord. Jesus, we pray that you, for you, Jesus, to be glorified in us in an Acts kind of way. We pray for our community. We pray for Frankfurt. Lord, work through us and the other gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches in our community. Lord, work through us for your good and for your glory. We pray for their pastors. We pray for them, Lord, that you would, you, you would speak your word through them to the making of disciples, to the strengthening of your church, the proclamation of your gospel. Use us collectively as your church to reach this community, Jesus, for your fame and for your glory. Jesus, show yourself as our Savior, the healer of everything that is broken, 
as a restorer of lives, the life giver. Show us your glory, we pray. Magnify yourself in and through it and do it in such a way that your name alone is praised throughout our lives, our families, this church. May it be so, we pray and plead in your name, Jesus. Amen.